I mean, his friends probably just called him Lenny. I happen to know for a fact that he was called Maestro in social situations. I once saw him in a bar and somebody came up to him and said, Hello, Maestro, how about a beer? Okay, so that's a fact. <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome back, finally, to a new episode of Exploring Kodawari. Life got busy the past few months, but we are definitely keeping this podcast alive, and we'll be putting out new episodes as often as we can. For those who are new to the podcast, we aim to explore the deep questions about life and meaning through interviews, deep dives into various topics, you know, usually those that intersect with the Kodawari energy. If you've never heard of this Japanese word, you can find links in the episode notes that describe what the Kodawari philosophy is, and how it structures our podcast and blog. Anyways, for this episode, we were joined by conductor Chad Goodman to explore the art of orchestral conducting, a topic that definitely captures the Kodawari energy. Chad is a good friend, our neighbor, literally, and is currently the conducting fellow at the New World Symphony here in Miami. That's where uh, my wife and co-host Yanka currently plays as well. Since 2018, Chad has been an assistant conductor to the San Francisco Symphony, uh, has been here at New World, and has a ton of other stuff you can read on his website linked in the show notes. Oh, and before conducting, he was also a trumpet player like me. Don't worry, we did not geek out about trumpet at all. We instead tried to dig under the surface of how orchestral conducting works in a way that I think is hopefully interesting for musicians and non-musicians alike. We talked about the meaning of music, how to interpret it, and how a conductor communicates their intentions to an orchestra. We also tried to get underneath the more abstract elements of music, like what makes certain performances so magical, or how can a conductor unify an orchestra into a kind of group flow state. And somehow I managed to get through the entire episode without quoting the maestro from Seinfeld even once. Anyways, I've always been fascinated by the art of conducting, and since Yanka and I have both played under Chad a bunch of times here at New World, we thought this would be a great way to get a more personal explanation of how conducting works. So thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode with Chad Goodman. Cool. Chad Goodman, welcome to Exploring Kodawari. Oh? I haven't even said the name of our podcast in so long. I know. <laughs> we forgot to podcast for four months. About four months, yeah, like Um so I usually attach an intro to the front of this like later, um, but can you give a more personal intro to who you are, what you do, how you got here in this very apartment? <laughs> My name is Chad Goodman. I'm an orchestral conductor. I currently work as the conducting fellow of the New World Symphony here in Miami Beach, Florida. And um, this is, let's see, my third year that I've been out here. Nice. And you came from? Before this, I was in San Francisco, but originally a Baltimore boy. So, yeah, East Coast. East Coast, exactly. <laughs> We're close enough, New York and Baltimore. Yeah. That's, that's how we have the same, basically, uh, childhood humor and uh, yes, it's references true. and all of that. Also accent. I People guess that I'm from New York fairly often. What, really? Yeah. Or I maybe mean, you don't have the classic New York accent as much as... Um, like Brooklyn or any of that, you know, it's, I would say I could hear the difference between New York and you, like yeah. Baltimore has a Baltimore kind Baltimore. of, you know, Baltimore. <laughs> Wait, how do you guys know each other? Why didn't you mention that first? Uh, 2010, <laughs> I want to say. Yeah. A good year. 
Good year for brass playing in, <laughs> in, in San Francisco. Um, uh, 2010 Bay Brass Festival. Mm-hmm. Is that still, does that still exist? Doesn't. Director left. Ours was the last year. They refused to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that was, well, no, we weren't in the same quintet. I we think weren't. we were just hanging out together. We hung out a lot. Okay. And, um, and yeah, so we met as two trumpet players at a music festival in California. And then I ended up moving out to the Bay Area specifically for grad school the following year and uh, and was out there until until Miami Beach and, and we reconnected here through uh, through Yanka and uh, it was like a blast from the past because I got to see Luke as well and just be like, oh, hey. Yeah. <laughs> hey, guy, we, I haven't seen in person in a, hey, in a decade. <laughs> <laughs> so my goal with this is to sort of maybe uh, – crawl under the surface of conducting just a little bit and figure out like um, an inside take on what conducting is, but not necessarily like, you know, what everyone already knows. Just, I'm curious about the the inside of like how you, how a conductor thinks about music and approaches a piece and all of that stuff. And I suppose we can start with like a basic definition, probably like half of our audience are musicians, the other half, like maybe somewhat music literate, who knows? But I think being able to explain something, like if you're an expert, being able to explain it to a beginner is like a really good sign of whether you're an expert or not. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Like um, having enough experience with something to abstract away from it and say like, hey, you're 10 years old. I can still explain what I do. You know those Business Insider YouTube videos where it's like explaining astrophysics to a five-year-old, to a 12-year-old, to whatever. That kind of thinking. So what would be your music muggle explanation for like what is conducting? I'd say, and it is a multifaceted kind of occupation so so it is it is a challenging one to describe, but I'd say on on a on a basic level. Uh, the role of a conductor is to unify a group of musicians to help with pacing and telling a story through the music. Because when you're working with a, a large group of musicians, everyone has their own ideas of how a piece should go, how their part should go. Um, they've put in their time, hopefully, uh, into <laughs> practicing, whether it's that specific piece or just the years and years they've dedicated to the craft. So when you get a lot of people in a room with one piece, there's going to be a lot of different ideas and viewpoints on it. And I think a conductor's job is to streamline all of that and say, hey, 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 I know I'm just one one viewpoint, but for this week, let's try approaching the symphony in this specific way. And this is how the story is going to unfold this time. It could be very different next time. It might not be the way that you necessarily had dreamed of it in your head, but we have a finite period of time to bring this whole group together. And it could so, be a hundred plus people. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... Unity. Yeah, unity is... is Unification is the, is the short answer. And then I could, of course, dive into the 10 or yeah, 12 yeah. other jobs, but it's 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 unifying. And, and with that, also, I think another really important quality is I, I compare what I do to um, a sound engineer sitting at a, at a board, a mixing board, and, and just fine-tuning. As a conductor, you're the only one not producing sound on a stage full of people producing sound and all of them are facing you. So you as a conductor, particularly standing on a podium, you have a higher 
point in which you are taking in all of the music and you do not have the sound of your own instrument vibrating in any way, in vibrating in yeah. your head, in your lips, in your whatever it might be. So uh, the conductor has the greatest opportunity to balance and make adjustments on what the collective sound that is being yeah. created is and how it needs to be tweaked so that it hopefully justifies the intentions of the music, of the composer, of what's yeah. on the page. Mm -hmm. A lot of times music muggles. Um, music muggles. I just love that term. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they, I, I get asked this question a lot by family members. If I send them a link to a concert that's live streaming or whatever, the, yeah. or they come. Why do you they're like that conductor yeah, type? They're like, honestly, tell me, is, that, is the conductor even doing anything? You know? mm -hmm, <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, they're like, would you guys just play it without them? And I'm like, Yes, kind of. Yes. Depending on the piece, it might fall apart. Depending on the piece, it might seem totally fine to your ears. But the subtleties of unity would get affected. Mm -hmm. And then more importantly, in rehearsals, the process of digging into the layers of the music, you need a leader. Mm -hmm. Try getting 100 people to agree on anything. Yeah. Who's going to make the decision? You need a leader, you know? Exactly. Yeah, and, and I think there's a reason that... Um, most orchestral musicians love chamber music. Maybe even the majority of them, if, if you could say we could pay you the same amount of money to either sit in the second violin section of the New York Philharmonic mm -hmm. and make an incredible living, or we could pay you the same amount and you could play in a string quartet. I'd, I'd imagine most yeah. would say I'm gonna, I'd rather play in a string quartet yeah. because you do have leadership. You have a greater say in what's happening. And of course, as a conductor, you have the perhaps largest say, except for when you're working on a concerto, in which case the role is flipped yeah. and the soloist has more say, depending yeah. on the fame and the level of the yeah. conductor too. It's an interesting tension. It's, it's an interesting tension uh, that either works very well for everyone or, or no, and it's imbalanced <laughs> and everyone kind of knows. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I think a conductor just is, the way I view it is I'm there to simplify things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because even without uh, the sign language being like specifically followed in a concert, you need something to unify a hundred people. And it, I mean, I guess my next question would be, what is the line between when an ensemble needs a conductor versus not needs one? Like, I think I was part of a project here a chamber thing where like you were potentially going to conduct. You're like, there's no way I'm conducting this. You guys don't need a conductor, you know? Yeah. I yeah. forget what it was. It was a, it was like a brass ensemble thing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. You're right. You're right. It was a brass ensemble piece. And um, yeah, I think the Brahms, it was the, uh, the Brahms lead. Oh yeah. 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 No, it's, it's something that I've encountered a lot. I, I think it, it depends on the complexity of the music, the number of people involved is also really important with a smaller group. Sometimes it's not essential. It is closer to like a string quartet experience uh, where, where the conductor is not needed. Um, so when it's, when it's repertoire that maybe is simple enough or small enough forces, where maybe small enough to the point that the players are all playing off of a full score mm -hmm. because they can, you know, mm -hmm. um, then I'm, if, if I'm not needed, I don't want to be there. You know, I think that's, that's a big thing. No one I, wants to go to a party they're not invited to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and I think with conductors, though, it's a challenge because it, it, there's naturally, an, the ego is, is such a part of the, the job mm -hmm. role. So knowing when you're not needed is, is, I think, crucial. And I think it separates a, a good conductor 
from an amazing one and, and something I'm continually working on is when I am conducting a symphony, what are the moments when I'm not needed? When can I take the back seat and actually follow what's going on mm-hmm. versus really be leading the yeah, entire orchestra? Yeah, a conducting experience, there are moments of you're yes. not needed, you are needed. Yeah, Exactly. And knowing, yeah, when I'm not needed, and I, I think that's important. I think it's something that as conductors especially younger conductors, it's, it's hard to learn because you study, you do all your preparation alone. Mm-hmm. You don't have musicians in front of you. You do it with recordings, you do it with an in front of an instrument, singing, whatever it might be. And then it's easy to feel the need to be in control yeah. in a sense. But I found the more experience I have, the more I am able to sort of pick up subtly when I'm needed and when it's not as essential and, and, in those situations, I can change my role because all I'm doing is jumping from one responsibility to another. So maybe in a spot where it's very, very straightforward, um, maybe the meters aren't complex. It's in a slow four beats per bar, four, four, something like that. Um, maybe my role is to just simply give visual cue of when something's handing off to someone else or it's realizing through the amount of studying I've done of the full score that, oh, the trumpet's going to be entering and they've actually been counting rests Mm -hmm. for the last four and a half minutes. So even though they also have an easy part, maybe the most important job for me at the moment is literally just to make eye contact with them and bring Mm -hmm. them into the folds. And and, and re-engage them into the layers of music that they've been out of. Yeah, yeah. And that is... I've thought a lot about why I love conducting and, and I went from, you know, being a trumpet player to a conductor and talk about an ego trip. <laughs> it, yeah, it's true. One stereotype, yeah, like yeah. ego monster, you know, job to another. But, um, what I loved about conducting was that it forced, it forces you to be in the moment, to be in present time mm-hmm. for every moment, uh, of of a piece, you don't have bars rest like you do when you're playing as an instrumentalist or you're a singer in, in in a group in an ensemble in an orchestra a band whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You're on. All you're the time. on. <laughs> and, and once again, like I just said, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily hard. It doesn't. You know, there might be times where I'm just sort of just literally just wave where it is just waving my hands for <laughs> for some time and 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 not necessarily offering the greatest emotional you know, life-changing experience every second of a piece, but I am engaged. Vamp, vamp, yeah, vamp, exactly. you know, you got, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so I, I think that's, that was probably the, maybe natural, naturally the, the biggest appeal for me when I started conducting was like, whoa, even if I don't love this piece, I have to be involved in, in every second of it. And mm-hmm. I end up going through these cycles with music where if I'm doing a, a newly commissioned piece or a contemporary piece or something, or even if I don't like the piece, by the end of my, study preparation and, and going through rehearsing and performing, I always feel like I got something out of it and, and it's never as bad as I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. Because I've had to invest so much time into it. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. even things of, that you don't end up loving, you uh, appreciate or respect when you get intimate with it. You know? Exactly, exactly right, yeah. Huh. Uh, I wonder, uh, what do you think is the main thing that makes conducting not work? Sometimes I like to ask like negative questions mm-hmm. when I'm not sure how to even ask like the right question the other way. In other words, like I'm I'm, I'm preparing a piece. I'm like, how does this definitely not go? You know, mm-hmm. like you're like, how does this excerpt sound obviously wrong? And then it starts pointing you in the direction of like, what is the right thing to do? 
Or like as an orchestral player, sometimes you have this gut feeling where like something's just not working and you can't really put your finger on it because... I don't know. I'm not familiar with like the mm-hmm. yeah. technique or anything. Like, I, I don't know. And often when in the orchestra, you don't know what the heck is going on when something's not working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't know if it's the guy on the podium. I don't know if it's mm-hmm. us. Is it that yeah. damn oboe player again? Like, yeah. you don't know what could be going on. But from your perspective, what, what makes the relationship of conductor to orchestra like not work? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways that can happen. I think one of the most dramatic experiences I had was working with a an orchestra that had leaders in the orchestra, the concert master and 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 therefore everyone else sort of followed it once again in these these natural hierarchies that we have in 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 the orchestral world um who studied and had entire careers in in Germany in opera houses and opera orchestras of Germany, which are notorious for playing very behind the beat. Mm-hmm. And 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 for those listening who maybe don't understand what that means, it's such an abstract concept. Where I might give a downbeat and I'll snap right now into the mic, where let's say one is going to be there. Um, in America, maybe there's more of a tendency the orchestra will come in on that if I give a cue and. One, the orchestra comes in relatively close. Of course, it's going to be a little bit late. Unless you're the BSO. Exactly. (laughs) But the BSO is is, is like this orchestra I was working with where it was like this. I'd go and one, bah, and the orchestra. That's a little exaggerated, but it's about a one second delay. Mm -hmm. And that is... Of, that's a very startling experience when mm-hmm. I had never had this before. It was definitely a, this is not working. And it was because I, the one person, didn't play. They all played together. Yeah. But I'd be waving my hands and I'd always feel like I'm off by at least a beat. And they're all completely cohesive. Yeah. So in that situation, I had to assess, okay, what can be done here? Either I can cut off in this rehearsal and say, hey, can everyone please play a little bit more on the beat? Or in this case, I'm a young conductor. I don't know this orchestra. They have their way of playing. It's yeah. far easier for me being one person to change how I'm approaching mm-hmm. this rather than asking 85 people to change for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not in a power position where I felt comfortable doing that. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to feel really uncomfortable moving through this. And just as long as it works, it works. Mm-hmm. Right. But that was an experience that things definitely weren't working for me. Mm-hmm. It was working for the orchestra, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so much of conducting is psychology. And how do I get the best and how do I inspire these, these musicians, these people who are doing a job? Once again, the reality is no matter how much we love what we do, I think the, after a certain point in, in any field, it can turn into feeling like work. And there are people who yeah. are less motivated than others. And when you have groups that don't want to be there, maybe they don't like the piece, the composer. Um, didn't have their coffee that morning. Didn't have their whatever, coffee that yeah. morning. They got a flat tire on the way. They're, mm-hmm. you know, kids failing out of school. Once again, people bring baggage to work, yeah. no matter yeah. where you are. Even if it's in an orchestra where people aren't necessarily talking, mm-hmm. um, you can still feel it. And when there's a disconnect on a human and emotional level, um, it can be really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this is a rambling, but there's so many examples. Uh, another one that's worth bringing up was uh, concerts I've done that where I've had to do, let's say, a kids' concert or family concert where in, 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 in the classical world, you don't get very much rehearsal time. Usually, you would get one rehearsal, like mm-hmm. a dress rehearsal in the morning of a show, and then you do a couple shows. Even though you're you know? still playing like hard rep. You yeah, know? It's, yeah. Still, it's still hard music, but 
um, it usually happens during a week. Like it, in, in, in the instance I'm thinking, we had a concert the night before that was entirely different music, a big subscription, you know, the big heavy real deal concerts. And the next morning I had to run a rehearsal on a kid's concert program. And guess what? People show up tired. They're burned out from playing the night before on completely different music. They haven't practiced yeah. this kid's concert music because they don't take <clears> it as seriously, which is unfortunate. But, uh, you know, also people can't give 110% every day for yeah. everything. Um, and I have less rehearsal time. And when the people show up unprepared, I know it immediately because no matter what, even for that kid's concert, I've put in 40, 50, 60, 100 hours into you this being rep. prepared is not an option. Yes. Yeah, as a conductor, you can't, uh, orchestra musicians will say that they know the quality of a conductor within, by, really, the joke, but also not joke, is like, by the time we just see them walk to the podium, we, we already have an idea of who this person is, what yeah. the level yeah. of preparation. So I always, I have to put in 100% because I can't fake it. Yeah. yeah. Um, when 100 people are, experienced musicians sniffing you out yes exactly <laughs> they, they see yeah. they see whatever you're hiding right away because like mm. so much human communication is like these subtle posture things like the vibe you give off and like yeah yeah so so when i show up to a situation like this where everyone's burned out tired people are sight reading and phoning it in um the way i describe it is these types of rehearsals feel like for me having to drag the orchestra through the mud is mm -hmm. what I say, mm -hmm. because they're making mistakes that they wouldn't make on a normal basis at a professional level. Um, they're slowing down, which in a professional setting is, is, is not always something that's usually something internal pulse is something that the re there's a reason that these players are in these, these orchestras, cause that is something they have under wraps. But yeah. um, when a group is out of it, I get very physically tired. My arm starts to hurt. Mm. That's how I know that it's a hard week, that there's a disconnect. So I think this mm. is this is the crux of it. Um, when I feel physically exhausted from a rehearsal, mm. I know that you're, things you're, are not- You're pulling too much. Things are yeah. not working. I'm having to overcompensate. I'm maybe moving with larger gestures in the hope subconsciously that that maybe is gonna, you know, get everyone yeah. inspired or, or moving in or, you know, honed in. Um, but that's when I know it's not working mm -hmm. is when I feel tired, when my, I go, wow, my arm hurts, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can feel that with teaching too, you know, when like students are just not trying to get better. Yeah. You're trying to get like more animated and all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, I used like, to call of... that chasing ghosts. Like yeah. when you're like, all right, let's really figure out why this kid's, you know, playing is not working. Like I've been doing everything. Stop chasing ghosts. It's not working because they don't care right now. You know? Yeah. When someone doesn't care, you can't make it better. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I've always felt for conductors when I'm in an orchestra and I can feel that's the energy because I'm yeah. like, guys, come on. Yeah, and it's kind of contagious, unfortunately. Like you want to kind of make a difference by yourself, but like when people are not on board, it's I just feel so bad. Like that must be such a bad experience too. It's it's know. it's hard, but once again, it's it's all about reframing and what are my expectations for this week, for this project, for this day. And I think that's a really important thing. If if your ego is so big that it's every concert needs to change the world mm. Mm. and I need to inspire every human on that stage, every everyone, um, that's going to be an issue. You're not going to hit that every time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think we're all... Nor should you. Right? Nor, nor, you yeah. nor should you. And and so reframing, it's no different than working with a student who comes in for a lesson, private lesson, and says, I haven't practiced since our lesson last week. Well, you can either be... In, angry, disappointed with the students, send them home. Or you go, you know what? That I'm glad I know this now. Let's reframe what's our goal for the yep. day. It's mm -hmm. not going to be that you 
do a run through of the concerto we've been working on for weeks. It might be, okay, let's get the fundamentals in again. Let's let's get your chops back in, in a bit yeah. better shape. I always appreciate when students uh, yeah. let me know ahead of time yeah. with, mm-hmm. with stuff like that. Yeah, so with conducting, you don't know ahead of time usually. <laughs> and you yeah. can't say something the same way. Like a hundred people can't go up to the conductor and say, hey, we just finished, you know, a Bruckner symphony last night. So we're kind of tired. Like I'm sure this is the, you, you just have to intuit it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, or, or you do hear these things. Usually it's from the administrative side mm-hmm. as a conductor. It's weird. Cause you bridge the gap between artistic administration and the performers. And so I find I have very close relationships with the administration, administrative staff. And so they're the ones who might, the personnel manager might come in right mm-hmm. before the first mm-hmm. rehearsal and say, all right, Chad, um, you know, we're excited to have you here. Just want to give you a heads up. We're missing these three people. This person's out sick. Um, and, and just so you know, like they had a double concert. Yes. Run out concert yeah. last night. They, we actually didn't, they probably didn't get back to their homes until like 11 at night. Just, just so you know, yeah. mm-hmm. data point, exactly <laughs> yeah. data point, because it's not necessarily going to come up. You're right? like you said, you right. have to intuit it or someone has been kind enough to give you a tip off or a lead. Right. So I have a, a Kodawari question. So Kodawari um, is sort of like what we developed this podcast blog about. Have you heard the term before? I have not. So it's a Japanese concept word, and I I first heard it in the world of coffee um, uh, about, and it, it kind of works for crafts in general, like pursuing the ideal, pursuing perfection, but also with the knowledge that you never can achieve your ideal, you can't achieve perfection. And yet it's the pursuit itself that is meaningful, kind of a very Sisyphus-esque kind of um, idea. And when I heard about that in coffee, like it got me into like buying all this coffee equipment and chasing after like the perfect extraction. There's a book called like God in a Cup about like getting the perfect coffee. Uh, And then it syncs up with what we do in music, you know, like just always refining, 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 chasing after almost like a carrot on a stick. You know, you can't get the carrot, but I love carrots. So let me get after that carrot. And then I was thinking like for conducting, it's like that process, but it's not even boxed into like an instrument and a part. It's like, there's the score, there's the notes, there's the music, there's the layers of music and all the details in the score. But then music is filled with all these contexts of like history and what the composer was living at that time. And then like, there's just rabbit holes upon rabbit holes you could go down to try to refine, you know? So I was curious what that Kodawari element, um, if, if, if that's something you've kind of just naturally arrived at, and then how do you let go of that? Like, I still need to refine this because I can't anymore. The rehearsal's today. It's time to just do it, you know? Yeah, I think there's a beauty to being a conductor that aligns with this immediately that I did not have as a trumpet player, which is, is what I, you know, stated earlier, the obvious, I n- I'm not the one making sound, I'm not producing sound. So there's a great freedom mm. in knowing, in knowing this, that um, I can't have complete control over mm. what's going on. Mm. And there's great, it, it's, it, it's a comfort. I, I found that my obsession with attaining the highest levels 
as a conductor are far healthier than they ever were for me as a trumpet player. <laughs> because with a trumpet, you're already, you can crack a note, oh, that note's flat, note, that note's sharp, that's this or that. Um, you know, we can obsess over these little details of perfection, imperfection. As a conductor, though, I realized after the first couple concerts I, I, I did that when I'd hear someone make a mistake, let's say specifically maybe it's the trumpet player, cracks a note, that would be as close to home for me, because mm -hmm. that was my main instrument, as, as anything could be. I wouldn't even flinch. It doesn't matter. Do I not? Do I hear it? Of course I do. Uh, I'm aware of it. But it doesn't change for me the greater, bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of perfection is not a note perfection thing. It's not something I care about. If there's too much that's wrong and things are out of sync, that isn't that is an issue. And those are things I want to correct. But um, what I'm chasing as a conductor is not note perfection is, is probably not the same perfection that the instrumentalists are, are chasing. It's probably good that they're chasing a different form of mm -hmm. perfection, if that's what we want to call it. For me, I'm chasing a feeling of connectivity that I'm able to sort of feel like we're all connected. It's, it's that weird, vague, is there science to this? Is it some spiritual thing? I don't know. But the, the idea of uh, from start to finish, whether there's wrong notes, things that are slightly out of tune, whatever, mm -hmm. that all of us collectively are just like honed in, unified. We're On sort the of, same like consciousness wavelength. Exactly. Yeah. And that this is happening with the audience, if we have an audience as well. That's what I'm after. And I think all of us have had experiences of performances or rehearsals, even sometimes it happens in the rehearsal and the concert's nowhere near as good. That, 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 does, that does happen. Um, so that's what I pursue. So I don't even think of it as perfection in, in maybe the traditional sense of classical music or just performers, because like I said, I, I don't have any control over in in the moment in a concert over that any is a, of that. a weird, like paradoxical freedom of like, yeah. It must be freeing at the same time. Like it kind of makes you like step away from the obsession. Like that must be a healthy feeling. Yeah. I, th I think it's really healthy. I, for me personally, and I think, you know, I know plenty of conductors who are more nervous and deal with more performance anxiety as conductors than it is instrumentalists. For me, it's mm -hmm. actually the opposite. I, 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 you know, I, do I get, have nerves? Of course we all do, mm -hmm. but I don't have it to the same extent. And I think this is part of it. There's a great freedom in it. And what are my expectations mm -hmm. of this performance, of my role in this performance? I want to be there as a connector. Mm -hmm. And that's my job yeah. for the evening. And, and we get as close to, to that feeling of oneness mm -hmm. as possible. That's what I'm focused yeah. on. I'm communicating what the composer intends, what exactly. the music wants, needs, needs to serve. So, yeah. exactly. It seems to be a common answer even for instrumentalists um, of just uh, removing yourself from the equation is often the best way to get over your, your nerves and, and any, any of the, the negative aspects of being a musician. It's like, just you're, th whether you're thinking I'm serving the audience, I'm serving the music, I'm serving the intention of the composer, whatever the way you can unlock, get out of the ego, uh, that whatever you know you're not like oh, like what if i crack this note you're just like i'm you know showing how cool this music is whatever phrase you can think yeah and 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 i think when a performance becomes effective and when musicians are playing at the highest level they it they perform in a way where they it it's aware they know they're part of this continuum where their entrance 
is has a connection to what came before and to what comes next. Mm. It's a conductor that's all I'm thinking of. It, once again, you're like sanding pacing. the different layers together, like smoothing them. Yes. Like yeah, assuming the music wants to be smooth. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great that's a great way of thinking about it. And and I think the great performers they know they know their role mm-hmm. at any given time. And the role is not necessarily yeah. about themselves. Like you're saying, it's not an ego thing. Yeah. It's a, I'm, I'm a cog in, in a far greater beautiful yeah, machinery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're wired as humans to want that, you know, to be part of something bigger, whether that's a group of cavemen hunting, <laughs> you know, like, so why do we love sports? Sports are simulated war, you know? It's like war that you don't have to worry about people dying, but we're doing the same basic, you know, tribal behavior, but in a more fun and controlled way. I had a section here about like music and meaning because the word meaning has been on my mind. I recently finished a long article on the um, like exploring Kodawari website about overcoming nihilism and exploring ways to define meaning and find meaning. And in that context, it was more like meaning in life and stuff. But I'd be curious, whatever answer comes to your mind, like in the context of music, what is meaning and where do you think that meaning comes from? As in, as a performer or just, this is just as a broad, all encompassing, like what is meaning in music? Yeah, like in the context of music, in other words, like meaning in life could be a, a, a whatever, but... Why is music meaningful? Why do, why do people, I mean, people love music. People come to hear music. My mom just went to a Paul McCartney concert last night. Some people hate classical music, but they love other music, you know? Some people hate jazz. People have different tastes and all that, but so like not necessarily classical music, but just organized sound, you know? Yeah. Where, where does the meaning come from and or what is it? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, yeah. I, uh, this, uh, I don't know. I'm, I know I'm inspired. Yeah. I'm inspired to give a very abstract answer. Cause I think that's, that that's the best I can do. But I, I'd, I'd, I'd guess that mean people find meaning in music because they find, they see themselves mm-hmm. in, in this music. Maybe they relate to it or maybe it's what they aspire to be. Um, or maybe it reminds them of someone else or some other event. Mm-hmm. And so, once again, it's all about connectivity and connection, and, and um, it's an outlet, or it's it's a w- it's a way of f- finding ways to relate to yourself and y- the human experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether that's through uh, Paul McCartney singing a song with lyrics of the greatest help in this, or mm-hmm. orchestral music, whether right. it's a tone poem where there's a specific story, and maybe you hear Alpine Symphony, you go, wow, I can imagine myself being on a hike, you know, I'm caught in a right. crazy mm-hmm. storm at the top, or I'm at the summit now, and I'm looking out, and I feel like I'm on top of the world. Mm-hmm. Or a symphony that is, there's there's no storyline to it as right. far as we know, but you feel pain, and you feel love, and you feel fear, and all of these very human things and right having just had Mahler 5 happen here i'm thinking like in contrast to something with lyrics or a story like program music you know something like a, a Mahler symphony like the fifth it's just like there there's like a deep message there and if i could just put it in words it wouldn't be Mahler 5 you know yeah people yeah. Um, have their own meaning out of it basically I'm, like the meaning is so untouchable it's like yeah. Um, so generalized 
knowledge. It's such generalized knowledge that you can't just say like, oh, the message is always do this or whatever. It's like, it's it's primal, it's more deeper or something. Yeah, and this reminds me, I'm going to butcher a, a, a paraphrase to the point that might not even need to be said that it's a paraphrase. <laughs> I could be sort of making part of it up. But I heard a concert recently in San Francisco and, and there was a quote that was spoken from, from an artist who was saying something along the lines of, um, if we all got along, if we all knew how to communicate with each other, we wouldn't need art. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, what's the Camus quote? It's, if the world were clear, art would not exist. Oh, there you go, yeah. So there you go. This person was paraphrasing. Couple. Yeah. That's, yeah. So art kind of comes in at the boundaries of what we can't understand about who we are and what we are and what we're doing and, and, and pokes in its v- vague ways at, at answering that. And I think the key with music is it's like, I heard it described once as like, uh, music represents patterns of being. You know, like if you're listening to Bach, you hear like, let's say a fugue or something, you hear an idea and you hear another idea and you hear another idea. And then you hear the interaction of that evolve. And those are patterns of being, you know, and that's what we do as humans. We have, I'm a person, you're a person. It's like, how do we be ourselves yet also harmonize and get along? There's a very just mirror of what we're doing. Um, And with Mahler 5, I kept thinking every time, you know, there's just this, uh, almost like the way a plant grows up, you know, there's like this reaching up towards something in Mahler's music that you're often in that, the sad stuff, but there's like a, a meaning to just like pursuing and, and working through the shit, you know, to get, to get out of the soil and then up to the sunlight kind of thing. Um, and, you know, you can't really say, I kind of asked you a trick question in the sense that like, I don't think you can say what the meaning of music is because if you could, like you said, it wouldn't be like Mahler even said, right. Isn't there a Mahler quote? Like if I could say what I had to express in words, I wouldn't bother writing music, something like that. Yeah. yeah or I could be making that. Up. Yeah. No, I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, on this topic, like of, of meaning and music. I had a, a question about conducting, like um, I, in my head, I have this model of like, let's say uh, you have like a word, you're reading an article and there's like a word and it's hyperlinked to another article. So you're like, you're in this one article and you could click that link to further read about one concept talked about in that article. And then in that article, it talks about a book to dive deeper. And in that book, you could, click deeper into, you know, whatever, that kind of rabbit hole. Um, what What's like the, what, what's an example of like a rabbit hole like that you've gone down while studying a piece of music and it really unlocked like a new meaning in the music or changed your interpretation? Maybe it's like translating something you didn't, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an instance from last week. I was the assistant conductor with the San Francisco Symphony, and there was a program that included Haydn's 103rd Symphony, which was nicknamed by publishers. It was not Haydn's choice, but it was nicknamed the Drumroll Symphony. And the reason being is the very first bar of the first movement is a fermata and an indication for the drummer to... There's just one note written there with a roll symbol over it, essentially. And so 
that, that, that's where the nickname came from. And the conductor I was assisting, Bernard Labadie, who's a, a period specialist, meaning he focuses on historical intention, historically informed performance, which on this podcast, I'm sure you've heard lots of talk yeah. of at this point uh, through, through, through Luke, Luke's deep passion for, for this side of the, the classical music space. Um, but he was saying for years and years and years and years, this bar and the subsequent bar, when this returns two thirds of the way through the first movement, there's another fermata bar with a, a drum roll. That's how it's been done. And it's nicknamed the drum roll symphony. So you go, okay, it just starts. Good. Then we go into the, you know, the orchestra enters. Mm -hmm. uh, the maestro, uh, Bernard, he, he, he brought up that uh, music historians and scholars then were looking at the original manuscripts and saw that Entrada is written underneath of this in small letters and that, right, Entrada is, is introduction. This is an introduction and that this is not just one drum rolled note. This was in fact an indication for the percussionist to, the, the timpanist to improvise. Mm -hmm. And so this needs to be a drum solo as long or as short as whatever they intend it to be. Mm -hmm. And same thing when it comes in later. So for years and years and years, it was just implied that it's one note because that's what's written on the page. Mm -hmm. But the translation of the word that was found in one of the particular manuscripts is what changed, unlocked that. Mm -hmm. is what unlocked it. So, so that type of stuff happens, not maybe in that context historically for me all the time, but when I study a piece of music, I study every aspect. I study, like you, you alluded to, the history of the piece. I always, in scores when I, that I'm conducting, I write down on the first page of the score, next to the title, the pieces of music that were written that same year by that composer, or the year before, the year after, mm -hmm. whatever the previous and following works were. So I have an idea contextually within their canon. Also, other important works by other composers that happen, other events that happen, wars, you know, mm -hmm. tragedies, whatever it might be that were happening yeah. near them or everything anywhere. is relevant yeah. everything's relevant and then on top of that you have like right now i'm, I'm studying beethoven 7 which i'm going to conduct next may in uh chicago or outside of chicago in elgin with the elgin mm -hmm. symphony and and so i'm prepping now for a concert yeah concerts i have may 6th and 7th 2023 and um i have open tabs on my computer right now of four different dissertations that people, various people have written over the last couple of decades on this piece and a formal analysis of it. Mm -hmm. You know, how is this broken down? Is it sonata form? What's the first theme? What's the second theme? How do they return? How do they mutate? What's going on with the harmony? And I have four different people who all have different ideas. There are plenty, there's plenty that overlap, but there's different ideas in all of them. Plus I have um, a score you can get through the New York Phil archives. You can see their scan uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. scores and parts from everything that they own. And so I always love looking at Leonard Bernstein's scores to pieces of standard repertoire I'm conducting because often he would mark furiously in his scores, whether it's, this is a four bar phrase, this is a three bar phrase or dynamics or Boeing's, or he'd make little notes for himself or like yeah. what the emotion of the character should be. And oftentimes I'll disagree. And that can be a really interesting and revealing thing. And so there, there are times where I go, Oh my God, I never thought of that. I thought that was one eight bar phrase, but he really specified it. I mean, he wrote it in colored pencil that this is a five bar phrase and a three mm -hmm. bar phrase. And that can change how you get the musicians to shape, you know, what's the direction this is heading. And then there are instances where I go, I think Leonard Bernstein was completely wrong. And I feel very confident. Now this might change in years yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. It might change by the end of the day when it's, like I figure out why he did that because I see another spot or, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I have moments like that where, I go, whoa, I completely disagree with this 
legendary master of a, of a musical mind. And that changes. He should have been drunk when he wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you can see they all have multiple copies of his scores, and you can see some of them that were an earlier edition. Mm -hmm. That was when he just started working with with the New York Phil, and then one that was marked in the seventies. You know, yeah. when he was an older man, and you can see how things changed. And that's such a really, cool yeah. thing to have markings. Like yeah, that. It's, yeah, it's crazy. And so like, that's been a huge resource my entire conducting career. Whenever they started the New York Phil archive, like putting that online for free, like, oh my God. Yeah, I, I remember looking that. through that one time when I was playing a Mahler symphony. I was like, I'm just curious. And then I was like, all right, I'm not the conductor. I need to practice the part. I don't <laughs> yeah. have time for this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they have, uh, speaking of Mahler, right? They have some, some of his scores because he was the music director of the New York Philharmonic. So you can see Mahler's, handwritten notes yeah. mm -hmm. on repertoire he was conducting and Bernstein nerding out on a very deep conductor level notated scores. He marked his scores in red and blue pencil mm -hmm. with red being cues, blue being dynamics. I think that's the, that's the order he used because he saw it in the archives there in person when he started working in the New York Phil that Mahler had done. So oh, interesting. They had colored pencils back then? Yeah, or, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, how did you get, like, blue pencils back then? He was, mar he was marking. He was marking in, in, in red and blue. And oh. so Bernstein went, hey, I like that. I'm going to start doing that. And guess what? I do that. So <laughs> MTT does that. I do that. So yeah, once again, yeah, yeah. I heard him say that uh, at, the, at the close of the Mahler 5 concert, MTT. He was like, um, he made a joke about, like, red and blue he did, yeah, a yeah. very obscure joke that. Yeah, I was like, I don't oh, think anybody here got that. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, so Bernstein always marked with red and blue. In fact, he uses a specific Swiss brand is what he had used uh, of of pencils that are sh um, sharpened on both sides. So half the pencil is red, lead, and half the oh. other half is blue. And Bernstein would refer to these as his ready blueies. <laughs> I think is what he called That's that, funny. which is um, hilarious, but. Yeah, I mean, and that's something that can be passed down and, and uh, you know, it's part of lineage, I think, which is the beauty of yeah. this art form and, and, and something I don't take for granted and I'm proud of, of is, is, is my musical lineage of my mentors and how I'm connected, once again, to this continuum, this yeah. ever-growing, both forwards and backwards as we learn more and more. Always evolving, but yep. holding on theoretically to the, the deepest things that are really working about it, you know, Yeah, yeah. ideally. Oh, I'm so glad that you mentioned how much work goes into exploring a music. You said like you have three different dissertations are open because I don't know, some of our listeners might not know like how much work goes into. Or like, that just more preparing. than a year before a concert yes. you start preparing. You know? And you prepare not just to like how you're going to wave your hands, like quote yeah, unquote, but yeah. you prepare in so, so many different aspects. I think it's important that... Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, the other fascinating thing about conducting is I put in this level of work. Um, now I'm at a point in my career where I am busy. I'm very busy, but not to the level of some of the top, top conductors who are on the road. They're guest conducting everywhere. They're conducting consistently, like almost every week somewhere mm -hmm. where there, there would, there often comes a time in a conductor's career and life where they don't have the luxury of time. Mm the same amount. So like, I'm young, I'm hungry. This is, you know, I'm in the earlier stages of my career. You're considered a young conductor in your forties. It's a very interesting mm -hmm. profession. So, um, which says a lot about how, how it works too, you know, like yeah. that, that you can see young violinists age 22 playing as soloists, but it's going to be rare that you see a, a 21 year old conductor, you know, deeply interpreting a symphony. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and I think this ties to what I, I've, 
seen through through what I've learned a, a lot in in Japanese culture, actually. Of of, I mean, if you take something that many people listeners have probably you know seen at some point, saw Jiro dreams of sushi, something like okay, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This idea where Jiro doesn't let his son make the uh, egg, you know, prepare the eggs until yeah. it's been forty years or something like exactly, that, and it's yeah. it's this idea of of experience. Yeah. Um. But but that was a slight slight tangent. But just to say what, what Yanka's you know bringing up about how much goes into preparation, all of that work helps me formulate an idea and a concept. I don't share the majority of that ever with an orchestra. I can't go in and lecture an orchestra and go, oh, you're based on this, and so this we're going to do this way because X Y Z because I studied this or this dissertation or isn't it really interesting that in this bar we go from this chord a five chord here and then it it veers off in this other way and there's modal mix like. An orchestra does not want a conductor to lecture them. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so the majority of work I put in never gets shared. I have notes. I like to mark my scores very heavily. I put <laughs> what characters and emotions I any every phrase has. I don't share those. Maybe once in a while, I am in a rehearsal. I'll cut off and go. Yeah, you know what? An oboe, anecdote about this moment, or yeah, something. one yeah. anecdote, or I say, oh yeah, oboe. You know what? Can that be a little bit more mournful? But I'll have three adjectives written on my score for that oboe solo. I'm not going to share three of them. Yeah, but I do that for my level of preparation, which I learned from my mentor from, from Michael Tilson Thomas, because he, that's how he does everything. Yeah. He thinks deeper on a deeper level than actually just about any musician. But I've it ever still met. affects what you do. Do you know that Ralph Waldo Emerson quote? It goes something like, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember uh, the books I've read. Like I don't remember the meals I've eaten. Even so they, they have made me. Mm, I haven't heard that. And I think that's a beautiful way to say like the work you put in, makes the music but like you could have 20 tabs open you know that's going to affect how you walk out on stage how you stand on the podium how you give that downbeat it's it's a depth of something just like you know i have this weird experience where like i'll read a book in detail that i really cared about and then five years will go by um and i'll go i usually take notes on a book and leave them in my phone and i'll think of like oh yeah that book and then i'm like wait, I barely remember this book. And then I think of that quote, like, even so, it's in me. Like, it's just not at that level of like, right here, right now, accessible, but it's mm-hmm. part of my DNA now, you know? Yeah, and, and I something as, as a younger conductor, um, I'm now at a point, though, with experience a number of years I've done this, where I am starting to get m- repeat opportunities to revisit a piece mm. and it's with a different orchestra but like i'm in a different space it's no different than reading the book yeah that you loved when you were 18 and you reread it at 28 yeah. and then yeah. later and and it changes and, and maybe it's you you find different things in the piece or maybe you you realize you don't know why you, you can't figure out why you loved the piece as much as you did yeah, because yeah. you don't have that same connection with it but what i love is that it's not static what i do is never static it's it's an endlessly fascinating career because every performance is different every rehearsal is different um and interpretations change and i see it in mentors who are much older let's let's take once again bringing up michael tilson thomas who is you know 77 right now and you know i remember spending time with him went to his place last spring um he was preparing to conduct beethoven five with the london symphony and he was going the next week and he wanted to talk through it with me, which once again is, is like a dream to be like this living legend. Yeah. Like calls me up and says, Chad, Chad, can I have some ideas about this Beethoven symphony? I want to run by you. Can you come over? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll and, be right there. <laughs> and so, so we do. And once again, this is as standard a piece. 
I'd assume he's in over 50 years of conducting professionally. I'd assume he's done hundreds of performances of this piece. Yeah. Like I wouldn't be surprised if he's done 500 plus performances of this piece. Mm -hmm. We sat there and talked through the piece for three hours and he's just questioning it. You know, what do you think about this? Or how could this be more spontaneous? Do you have any ideas, Chad, for this? I'm thinking about holding this formata longer here and I'll, I could I could make it more efficient in the rehearsals by telling the orchestra, okay, real quick, get your pencils. This, this formato we're going to hold, you know, closer to one to two seconds, but this one will be five to six seconds. And right. he's 50 plus Which years into conduct depth of him, but also yes. the depth of the music. Exactly. That you can spend that much time with it and still have a sense of mystery and, and beginner's yes. mind towards it. Yes. And that's my goal with conducting is mm -hmm. I want to be doing this for the rest of my life. Once again, things change. Maybe there'll be a time when I want balance in some other fashion, but mm -hmm. I, I admire that so much. And, and, and that's what I crave is to be that hungry about music and have that be a driving force in my life as long as it can. Mm-hmm. And with conducting, because you're not working, not worrying about like fine muscle memory, things that maybe fade quicker, your lips as a trumpet player, yeah. Yeah. you can conduct later and later and later. And like Herbert Blomstedt, uh, famous conductor, he's 95 now. Yeah. He's still conducting. He's flying over the world. He's been famous since yeah. the 60s, 50s and 60s as a professional conductor. He doesn't need to make, do this to make money. He's made more money than anyone could ever need as a, you know, to live comfortably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um... He had all the fame. He's had decades of fame. He doesn't need that. He's doing it because he needs to keep... He has something to say. He has something to say and he's curious, right? Yeah. That Pablo Casals quote about, you know, when they asked him, like, why are you still, you know, practicing? You're in your, your 70s or 80s, whatever it was, you know? And he's like, because I think I'm getting better. Or something, yeah, I'm making that's progress. beautiful, I'm making progress. Yeah, yes. I think I'm making progress. Like, that's... Yeah. Oof. Okay, yeah, I think they're so. They're, these are all different ways of expressing that that same Kodawari thing. And I could, I could also have totally, you know, uh, uh, botched the original meaning of it. Like it, I, uh, but for me, I kind of made it into this like word that could um, codify like a life philosophy of like you never arrive anywhere. Like arrivals are an illusion. You're just always traveling somewhere. You know. And for musicians, we have this sense of like, that's a beautiful quote, like, because I'm progressing. Like, of course, that's why I wake up and do anything, because I might get better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this idea of arrivals is really interesting. And I think anyone goes through this in, 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 in their lives. Everyone goes through it. But I think there are certain things in any industry, in, in, in our industry, and let's say in this country as a classical musician, there are certain bucket list experiences mm. I'd like to be able to, I want to perform at Carnegie Hall. Yeah. I want to be a headliner at Carnegie Hall. I want to conduct the New York Philharmonic, the, what, whatever it might be. There's The proms or whatever. Exactly, yeah. the BBC proms at Royal Albert Hall, um, whatever these, these might be. And guess what? If you're lucky enough, you get to experience those things. And then from talking with anyone who's done any of this, it's always, okay, what's next? Yeah. You know, it what's ends. the next project? What's the next? Yeah. And it's great. You've done that. You've won the Grammy. You've won 10 Grammys. You've won 20 Grammys. Like that's just a, yeah. an award, a, an acknowledgement of the hard work you've been putting in your entire life. So that doesn't necessarily have the same meaning. Yeah. And so. Um, yeah. If you're chasing after the arrival, the attainment. Yeah. You're going to be disappointed when you get it. And then. I mean, let's say like you're chasing after the Grammy or whatever the thing you have, and then you get it, 
it's going to take probably 12 hours for your brain to go, what's next? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and you hope that it does. And you hope that it's for a positive that you go, great, what's next? Exactly. Not, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, what's next? And yeah. I, you know, and naturally people find both. They experience both. Yeah. The reason that, that you know, I think people who from, from the vantage point of the, the average person would say, wow, that person has everything. They have money. They have success in what they've done. They have, they own a house. They don't have debt. They can fill in the blank with all these things. And those people are, a lot of those people are very unhappy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's because they don't have this. They don't have something to to keep them going, keep Mm -hmm. them going. Yeah. I have one more question about communication and then like a quick speed round of like, Mm -hmm. you know, I love that. Um, So the communication question was, I I just rewatched this video today. Um, when we were at Stony Brook, the conductor, Rosin Milanoff, have you heard of him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he came um, three or four times. And I remember really just connecting with something about how he conducted and watched a couple of YouTube videos of interviews and whatnot. And he kind of said something t- along the lines of like, we as conductors have a sign language and we're trying to get the musicians to use their hands correctly in that sense. But then he said, uh, we're also trying to like inspire and and put heart to the music and and expression. And he said that deepest communication from a conductor comes from the eyes. And I'd be curious, like, w- would you agree with that? Would wh- how, just how do you react to that? Because I I always, um, since he said that, I've kind of paid attention to conductors' eyes to see how they make eye contact when they make it. You know, like. And then I remember just to put some context in this, I was reading a book on like primate evolution and how we evolved our intelligence and whatnot. And humans are like one of the few mammals that have whites around the sclera, the, the part of our eye that isn't the where the light goes in, which allows us to see where someone's looking other primates and mammals. It, it, the, the white part that we have is the same color as the, middle part of their eye. And so I was just thinking like eye contact is fundamental to our evolution of working in groups and understanding other people's emotions, where they're looking, what their intention is, that kind of thing. You know, you walk past someone on the street, like we did today. I made eye contact with this guy. I'm like, Yanka, let's keep going. That guy's fucked. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you just read a, a deep emotion from the subtlest of eye contacts, you know? So anyways, I was just curious what your reaction to, to his um, saying that is. Yeah, I, it's, it's so romantic. I, it, like, what a romanticized statement. Uh-huh. And, you know, I love being a, a musician. And I mean, anyone who thinks for, as, as an artist, like, that's such a beautiful thing. And, it, and there's truth to it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd, I wouldn't limit it to the eyes. Um, it's your nose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's a very weird reference. Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, link it in the episode notes. Oh my God. Are you, yeah. Um, I won't. I won't. Yeah, You're yeah. going to have to figure out what I just referenced. Yeah, write that down. I'm so lost. Go on. Um, but, 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 but I do think body language mm-hmm. in general. Now, now the eyes, it's curious, right? Of course, I think all of us have thought of this. All performers in the last several years of this pandemic where masks are being worn a conductor, I always think everything, my whole entire face is is a way to communicate mm-hmm. expression in a performance, in a rehearsal, whenever. And now I'm limited. I only have eyes and eyebrows to use. I yeah. don't have everything else. I find the mouth very useful. Mm-hmm. When I, 
That's a funny statement. I find the mouth very useful. You know, for speaking. Sorry, I just heard that sentence in isolation. Exactly. I was like, I'm going to clip that out. Yes. <laughs> but but for for working with an orchestra, it's not only using my eyes and and, and showing expression in that and, and my eyebrows, but it's also maybe articulation is something I think mm. uh, a lot about. And so it's showing, you know, I might be gritting my teeth if I want something really short, mm. you know. Uh, or it's very open if I want it to be a warm, rounded sound. And that's been removed from the equation with masks. Yeah. Um, so, so are eyes the most important? I don't know. I think they're all very important. I think they're all tools. Yeah. Uh, I, I haven't thought of it as the, the be-all, end-all. But of course, there's a lot yeah. to what you mm -hmm. can show. I think it's also like eyes. it's not just literally the eyes, but all the muscles around the eyes and how you shape like yeah the gaze you know yeah so so i'm gonna put it on both of you i mean yanka what do you feel as a performer mm -hmm. what do you consciously a lot of what you do with reacting to a conductor is subconscious or it is using peripheral vision and you're not mm -hmm. really locking in because you have notes to look at and think about but are what do you feel as a performer is something important what is there any aspect that you can picture being the most important um, with a conductor a way of connecting well what happened is um I don't know, I might be influenced because what you just because of what you just said, but this past Mahler concert that we did with MTT, I think gaze was the biggest one, but like not the like quick one, but the one that where he turned his entire body and like looked right into your soul Ooh, where I'm like, you yeah. really want something right now and I need to figure out what that is and I need to give that. So I think gaze plus like a body gesture. So it wasn't just the eyes. Yeah. I think that yeah. was the like most clear to Very me. Very cool. Yeah. It's like an attention thing, right? When someone's paying attention to you, you're like, oh shit, like they want something. Like, and if it's a conductor, how do I give it? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not always clear what he wanted to be very honest, but I'm like, he wants something right now and I need to kind of figure that out myself. Yeah. So yeah, it's, if it's volume, if it's like, you know, come with me, like I wasn't exactly sure with him. But. And sometimes it's supposed to be a little bit unclear there's just like a an undefined depth of something that they want you know mm. if it's like a sad moment in Mahler like you know I'm thinking of Mahler five second movement when all of the chaos kind of dies away and the cellos are just playing that soft thing if he looks at the cello section with like sadness in his eyes then that helps them feel like okay i'm not just playing -da. they're like they're, they're gonna find that emotion more easily if that emotion's leaking out of the conductor's eyes kind of thing yeah um i don't think the eyes are always the most important thing but i think perhaps maybe the deepest moments might come from that and then it's also your nose <laughs> all right ready for speed round yes all right uh What's the most profound thing that you've changed your mind on, whether in music, personal life, whatever, over the last 10 years? Something you used to believe and don't believe, something you never believed and do believe, whatever. Wow, this is a speed round. Um, you got 10 I'd, seconds. I, I, I'd, I'd say I've... <laughs> um, definitely, once again, it's, it's this, the, the abstract, the sort of indescribable spirituality of things or how are we connecting? Once again, through, through conducting this, this profound experience of what is going on here mm -hmm. that I can describe the atmosphere as being electric. Everyone in the room is zoned in, is yeah. locked in. Um, I don't know how, to, we're not, none of us are communicating right now with mouth, with anything, yet we're all together on this. That just sort of rattled my world. So yeah. definitely an openness to the unknown awesome. of, yeah. Awesome, I love that. 
you might be interested in, um, have you ever heard of Stephen Kotler? No. I'll, I'll send you some stuff. Um, he has a book and he studies flow states. And um, he, his, his um, protocols, like the Navy SEALs have started using it to make like SEAL Team 6 or, you know, groups of like 10 Navy SEALs. How do they work as like one cohesive unit in these like subtle, like you don't even have to communicate like when this person's going to move and signal this. Like, um, and there's, there's cool ways he basically studies how do, why do humans sometimes spontaneously go into these flow states? Um, and people have different triggers for it. And you can take a flow test where you figure out like what your flow profile is and what um, precondition, your flow, your flow file, <laughs> what preconditions tend to put you in a flow state versus get you out of it uh, and stuff like that. I can't wait. Yeah. I'll, I'll find that link and, and send it to you and put it in the notes. Uh, second one. What is the annual rainfall in Bora Bora? Best guess. <laughs> is that a reference to a TV show? Please. You don't need to answer. <laughs> A decent amount. <laughs> That's the right answer. Sounds like you sh should have studied Mora Mora. <laughs> oh, God. I can't believe we actually... Uh, I might have to cut that out. It's 76 inches, though, if anybody's like going to go to a bar trivia or something. 76 inches, the annual average rainfall in Bora Bora. <laughs> I honestly didn't think you actually wrote this, but moving on. Okay. So, without getting in trouble, naming names or anything, what is the craziest thing you've ever witnessed while conducting? Oh, man. Um, I don't even, I, I don't even know on the spot. This is, this is challenging. Cause once again, you shut out a lot of what's happening too. Yeah. Cause you are in a flow state, hopefully. Um, well, I think it could also mean like you're in a rehearsal and somebody stood up and said like, fuck this, I'm done oh, with the orchestra yeah. life, you know, like what? Oh yeah, I've seen that. I've seen plenty of that. Not from me, not from me conducting yeah. in my trumpet days. Um, small things I catch as a conductor, because once again, you do have the vantage point of making eye contact with every single other person on stage, mm -hmm. um, which no other person on stage has that opportunity. Or, the only or, or people will just get weirded out if they you exactly. are. Exactly. Yeah. So it's catching people rolling their eyes after i've said something ah yeah and i know immediately huh okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> noted and you know put that in my uh book of names <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i wish i had a better answer i'm sure 10 minutes 20 minutes an hour something two days from now i'll have more to share well we're about yeah. to have dinner so just tell us that exactly <laughs> yeah um what's something you are sure is true and if you are not 100 percent sure about anything being true what's like you know, one of the strongest beliefs that you're like, this is, this has got to be true. I should tell you now <laughs> our, yeah, that'd be a great, our speed round is like, um, uh, ironically like yeah. <laughs> not Deep. speed oriented. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, say it one more time. What is something? What's something you're sure is true or as close to being sure as, as you could think of. Oh God. I don't know. This is really hard. That's, that's oddly difficult. Um, that I am meant to express some part of my being through making music. Cool. I can't separate from that. Cool. I like that. I think that's a good thing for whatever artist you're... I still have in my wallet a, a what's it called? A fortune cookie that I got in high school. This was like a year after I started getting serious about music. And it said, music will play a crucial role in your life. Are you serious? I yeah. Have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I ever told you that. Yeah. yeah. It's somewhere in my wallet. 
And then another quick, easy speed round question uh, to end us off. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> is that the actual? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no pressure. Just easy. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say 42 because I bet most people have said that. Honestly, I don't think anyone, anyone has said has 42 said yet. That. Yeah. I mean, I have, but. I don't think anyone has. Yeah. Or I, I would have remembered probably. Uh, what is the meaning of life? Oh, God. On the spot, let's say. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, for me, what it comes down to, things I care about creating deep, meaningful connections with other people, whether that's through music, whether that's through conversation, romance, whatever it might be, um, eating amazing food, mm -hmm. traveling to gain a broader perspective of just how different life is for other people all over the world, um, and being appreciative of what you have. Yeah. Gratitude. Gratitude. Yeah. I think it's okay. Like I used to flinch at like, oh, you can't say what's the meaning of life is making meaningful connections or, you know, I think you can fuck that. Yeah. Or, or, you, or once anything. again, yeah, you can say, or, or, or you can give the answer and say, uh, there is no meaning to life. The meaning of life is what you feel like putting out there and, and receiving. Yeah. Right. Or you can be Mr. Peanut Butter and say meaning of life is searching for the meaning of life until you die or something. No, he <laughs> says the universe is a cruel and uncaring void. The, the the secret to life isn't the search for meaning. It's to keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. <laughs> this is a dog in, in the cartoon, Bojack Horseman. No, but I like that answer. Connection. Connection. Gratitude. Like, words like this. Like, if you can't just assume those kinds of meaningful things, then good, good luck doing the alternative. Go ahead and live a life without connection, without gratitude, without seeking out meaning, like see what happens. It's probably not going to be great. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was a solid hour of some deep stuff. Thanks for coming on. Of thank course. You. Thank you. Um, you can just tell me after this, like what links I, I'll link to your website and whatever else you want me to link to. Do you have like social, you have Instagram. I know I do. do you yeah. have like a YouTube channel or. Yes, I do. Uh, I don't use it as much, but um, yeah, some social media links, cool. website. So check yeah. out the episode notes. We'll put all that in there. And let's go make some Turkish food for dinner. Let's do it. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of Exploring Kodawari. If you enjoyed it, we hope you'll consider sharing it on social media and with friends. You can also help us out by leaving a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Those help us more than you would think. And if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, consider going over to our website to make a donation through PayPal. Links are in the episode notes for this. You can do this as a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. All of that support will help us to set aside time in order to create content for the podcast and the blog. And finally, please get in touch with us and say hi, either on social media or privately through email. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.